Hey, good morning. Welcome to Kesed. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you're new, my name is Danny. I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, we are closing our paper airplane series here this morning. So uh, I just want to encourage anybody who, if you've missed a few, uh, try to go back and watch them. There, there are some really special stuff that happened inside this series. And uh, I'm sad to see it go. I'm not sad to always to see a series go. So that's a big deal. Sometimes I'm like, we just need to put that thing to bed. But uh, this one, I feel like we could have done quite a few more weeks because of the way that God just was using it both in the people who were uh, listening and, and my own heart, our team's heart and everyone else. So thank you for, for participating. Uh, the kind of crux of the series was this statement, the creator created you to create. The creator created you to create. And when you look at that, that text, you, you hear that that uh, statement, the, the idea isn't that just the creator created you to create art or the created you, creator created you to create creativity. It's that the creator created you to create a life that, uh, that is fulfilling, a life that, that is meaningful and a life that is satisfying. And so today we're going to talk about what it would look like to step out into that life. For, for you and I to do that, though, we have to do something that is risky, uh, and that is dream. We have to dream about that life. We have to think about it. We have to imagine it. I don't know if you've ever uh, put together, but human beings are the only creatures that can imagine a future that doesn't exist yet. Uh, nothing else can, can, can kind of look out into the distance and say, you know, if this happened and this happened and this happened and this didn't happen, uh, I think I could end up living a life like this. But over time, we've learned to not do a lot of that. We've learned that dreaming can be very painful because uh, a lot of us in this room have experienced death when it comes to our dreams. And so what we do is we hold those, those deaths, those excuses up close. We, we feed them. We even nourish them often. And then the next time a dream comes along, we, we have the willpower to say, no, I've already experienced the pain of a dream that, uh, that, that didn't come true. There's not a person in this room right now that if you sat in a therapist's office for three or four sessions, wouldn't eventually get to a place where you had to talk about the dreams in your life that have died. The dreams in your life that, that you just thought for sure, maybe a few years ago or maybe many, many decades ago was gonna be a true thing about your story that as of today is just not. And you actually actively avoid thinking about it because it brings that much pain. Uh, I'm gonna give you some context in order to uh, maybe resurrect some of that dream and uh, to maybe with some courage start that dream again. Uh, there is a story in the Bible, Genesis chapter 16, if you have a book with you, uh, I'll put the verses on the screen of uh, a man and a woman, Abram and Sarai, that God came to and said, I'm going to do something special in your life. They're, uh, they're what we might call main characters. They, uh, they're, they're, they're the promised ones. And God said to them, this special thing I'm gonna do in your life is I'm going to give you a child. Now, children are of course a massive blessing, but this was a significant blessing because Abram and Sarai were very, very advanced in years and they had never been able to have children. So God goes to them and he says, I'm gonna give you a child. And this, this dream of theirs was so very dead that when Sarai heard God's promise from God, she laughed out loud, scripture says. Anybody had a dream that dead? Mm -hmm. Good, good. Stay in that space, stay in that space. A dream so, so dead, so withered 
that even though scripture and God may tell you that this dream is going to come true, you and your spirit internally laugh out loud. Now, Abram and Sarai, they followed faithfully and they waited in spite of their scoffing for God to make the dream come true. And about 10 years went by and lo and behold, the dream never came to life. She never got pregnant. Now we believe she's somewhere in her 80s. Not a lot of 80-year-old pregnant women around that I've ever met, but that's what God said he was going to do. So Abram and Sarai got together and Sarai, wanting to push a little further and a little faster than, uh, than God was willing to go, came up with a plan. She went to Abram and she said, Abram, I, I have an idea. God said that you're going to, to, to have an heir. And, he, and what I want to do is I want to offer you my maidservant, Hagar, to be married so that you can have an heir with her because she is much, 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 much younger than me. Now, we always talk about the righteousness of Abram, and I'm not trying to, to overly read the text, but I will say there is no denial and no pushback, it seems, from Abram at all. He's, he's not like, but Sarah, you're the one I love, but Sarah, God promised. It just feels like he's like, okay. So they get married. Now, here's where the story gets interesting because Hagar at this point is not a main character. She is a maidservant who is destined to be a servant to someone in this culture better than her for the rest of her life. And all of a sudden, Sarai comes to her and says, this is what I want to do with you. And suddenly she sees a dream being offered that will change everything. For to be the wife of Abram, a very wealthy, a very known, a very powerful man, this would have been the dream beyond dreams beyond dreams. And she would have known that she was going to be his wife in order to bear him an heir, meaning this maidservant was now going to be allowed to have children. And so she's given this dream and she marries Abram and sure enough, she conceives. And then this happens, Genesis chapter 16, verse four. And when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power to do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, with Hagar, and Hagar fled from her. On the surface, Hagar was no one in the spiritual economy. She was never going to be more than who she was, but now the dream had come. But guess what happens sometimes to the dreams, even when they come out of nowhere, even when we don't plan them, sometimes people show up in our lives and rip the throat out of them. Sometimes people kill our dreams and there's nothing we can do about it. It says that she wandered and wandered and wandered until verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. This was what she named. This is the name that she gave him. You are a God of seeing. 
for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. In spite of the dream showing up and then being ripped away, God shows up and he finds her in a place that he can recalibrate what she's experiencing to still be something beyond her wildest imaginations. This is because oftentimes dreams are meant to be discovered. They're not just meant to be built. They're not just meant to be planned for. They're not just meant to be controlled. Sometimes you have to get in a lonely desert place. I have to get in a lonely desert place in order to hear from God about a dream I didn't even know he wanted to offer me that somebody else tried to kill, how he's gonna resurrect, restore, and renew. And that means sometimes, like this story, we have to go back to places we don't wanna go. We have to exercise great obedience and so follow God back into the trial or fire. So may I just say, some of us in this room, as we talk about dreams, you relate quickly to the, the dream you had that, that, that whose throat was ripped out. But my question is, are you willing to be obedient and follow the spirit of God back into a difficult place in order to see the fulfillment of the dream he gave you? Some of the dreams you are experiencing coming true, not because God doesn't want to bring them into your life, but because you're not willing to walk back into the fire and back into the hard place. And that, my friends, is often where dreams die because we sit in the desert and we wait for God to bring all the goodness to us when God's like, but the goodness is right back there waiting in camp, right back there waiting inside the part of your story that you're avoiding. For Hagar, her dream sat back with Abram and Sarai, whose names the Lord would soon change to Abraham and Sarah. The rest of Hagar's dream was waiting with them. She uh, gave birth to the boy and then raised him for about, about uh, 10 years until eventually the young man Isaac was given by God to Abraham and Sarah. And then about two years of weaning happened before this verse right here. Genesis chapter 21, we'll start in verse one. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And the child grew and was weaned. That took about two years in this culture. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing at the feast. So he would have been about 12 or 13 years old, Ishmael would have. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Notice how she is no longer called the wife. She is no longer called the person who would help to, to bring the dream that, that Sarai, now Sarah, had planned. Now she becomes a slave woman. And so Sarah deems her as less. And so once again, Abraham doesn't do any pushback at all. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, which is about a hundred yards at this time. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Many of us in this room, we know this place intimately. 
We know the place of our dream dying under a bush a hundred yards or so away. And this is why we don't risk dreaming. We don't risk dreaming anymore because of something someone did to us. Because of the actions or the traumas created by other people becoming and becoming eventually in our own lives, consistent disqualifying lies that keep us from the life we really wanted to live in the first place. And all we know to do is cry out. So let me just, let me just take a second and go just a little bit off script. Um, for those who have a dream that's dying under a bush a hundred yards away because of something somebody did to you, I just need you to hear from me that it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You are still worthy of the love. You are still worthy of the dream. You are still worthy of the life that that dream promised. And it is not your fault. And there's no way in a room like this or wherever people are who are watching that, that I would know more than, than that. But I need to tell you on behalf of the Holy Spirit, humbly, and I hope with great power that, that you are still whole, that you are still loved, that you didn't deserve it, and that it is not your fault. This is the place that Hagar is at. And so the advice I can give you is only the advice that she offers, which is just to cry out to God and be honest, to be authentic. Don't play church games. Don't use your Christianese. Don't try to use your spiritual gymnastics to make it like, oh, I'm not really suffering. And if God wanted to kill it, then it's supposed to be dead. No, stop. Somebody did something to you and killed something in your story that was meant for life and meant for good. And if that's true, you need to know it's not your fault. And God wants to do something about it. And it says that God heard, just like he hears you right now. God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink and God was with the boy and he grew it may not feel like it, but I need to remind us that the Bible has a consistent message for people in places like this and places like I think many of us in this room are in. It says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the crushed in spirit. That he shows up when we cry out and we proclaim the injustice in a true and honest way. And as human beings, it is a beautiful tragic thing to find oneself in this space, but it is a beautiful, beautiful thing to realize this. Nothing, nothing, nothing anyone has ever done to you can keep God from accomplishing his plan and his will for you. Nothing. They don't restrict anything when it comes to God wanting to bless your life. 
There is nothing anyone has ever done to you that can minimize the effect of God's love in your life and the things that he wants to speak into it that are true, including the dreams that you thought were dying in a bush a hundred yards away. But you've got to be honest with him. You've got to go before him. You've got to be honest about this wandering place that you're in. You've got to be honest about the dry heat and the thirst and whatever else it is emotionally that you're feeling. That's your job if you are someone who's had a dream killed by somebody else to go before God and proclaim in the midst of his presence, God, this isn't fair. And I need your healing in order for me to see it. I need your 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 vision in order for me to see the wells of water that you've already, I believe in faith, placed around me that can quench my soul and can bring new life and new greatness to my story. Now, I think it's obvious if you can feel the spirit in the room that there's a lot of people feeling that presence, but there's another group of people in the room that um, you and I with the spirit are battling right now because when you start thinking about dreams and dying, the first thing that comes to mind is not someone who killed a dream in your life. Instead, the question might be this, what if I feel disqualified because of something that I did to another or to my own self? What about when it is your fault? What about when decisions you've made or I have made have killed dreams and promises God has for me? How am I supposed to move forward with that? When I know that it's no one else's fault but me and a decision I made back here or that I made recently or a situation I find myself in, I can't blame anyone else. It's just me. What do we do with that? There's a person in the Bible by the name of Peter that many of you know. I I like Peter because uh, his stories are like all primary colors, right? There's just hardly anything about him that's... uh, that's, that's in any way sort of uh, vague or, or, uh, or hybrid. He's always this way and he's always that way. The story goes that Jesus is picking disciples and people are starting to take note that he's a fairly good preacher. So a crowd builds and he ends up by the side of a lake and there's so many people around him that they're pressing on him. And so there's a fisherman there who just got back from a really poor night of fishing. And he says, do you mind if I step in your boat and give a sermon? This guy's like, sure, why not? What else do I got to do today? So Jesus steps in his boat and he gives this message and it's beautiful and it affects Peter's heart. And then Jesus turns to him and this is what he says, Luke 5, verse four. And when he, Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, his name before Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, uh, we toiled all night and took nothing. And then Jesus sat there quietly with a long pause, I believe. We're missing a lot of the pauses in scripture. I think Jesus paused a lot when people tried to argue with him. And then Peter said after seven or eight seconds of silence, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So they rowed out to the deep. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large, uh, rowed out to the deep. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. 
They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help him. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Verse eight, listen carefully. But when Simon Peter saw it, the nets filled with fish, he knew it was a miracle. And this is his posture. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We honor this posture. We say, what a beautiful, insightful man Peter is to understand immediately his own depravity, his own failures, his own weaknesses, all of the different things about him that, that are incomplete. And Jesus seems to honor that place well, for he blesses Peter to be one of his disciples for the next three years, pouring into him situation after situation, and love after love, truth after truth, until Peter becomes this willing, obedient, attentive, nearly, nearly perfect student. He is brave. He is courageous. And he will be the one who has the biggest failure. At the end of his three years, he would spend getting to know this God-man Jesus. He comes up short one dark and fear-filled night when Jesus is arrested and it really counts and Peter ends up denying him three separate times. I don't even know who you're talking about, he says. I wonder what does it feel like to fall so low so fast and hear yourself throw it all away one denial at a time. I don't have to wonder. I have been in this situation and I know there's others in this room, you've been in this situation where the cushion of righteousness that you built up, like the savings account of good decisions, just got drained overnight over one bad choice. And that choice haunts you. And it follows you from room to room and story to story and sermon to sermon. A short while after Jesus' death, Peter goes back to what he knows. Fishing. He just goes back to the routine of being a, a failure of a human. And he's out fishing one night, and guess what? Catching no fish again. And then there's this guy on the shore, far enough away they can't really tell who it is. And he yells out at them, John 21, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? <laughs> And they all answered back, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This story seems so very familiar. Verse seven, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And listen to what happens. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I want you just to think about this for a second. You have denied him. You have lied. You have, you have deceived. And now you are back in your old life doing your old thing. And Jesus shows up and Peter jumps in the water stroke by stroke, swimming towards the Messiah who, if he thought of him like he did in the first place, he should have jumped in the boat and swam out to the other side of the lake where he hopefully would have drowned before he got to the other side. That's how we think about our stuff, right? But Peter's different now. 
He sees Jesus, he hears of the resurrection and suddenly there he is reminding him of the life he used to have and the life he was called into and suddenly stroke by stroke is getting him closer and closer and closer to the relationship Jesus always said he would have. Think for a minute about that. As Peter gets to that part when you're swimming where you can barely stand and now you're just awkwardly waiting. At this moment right here, when Peter's the only one with eyes to see the eyes of Jesus, his own depravity has never been on more display. He has never been more self-disqualified than this moment right here. And yet he is rushing towards Jesus without abandon. You see the difference in this time, Peter isn't meeting Jesus for the first time. Peter knows Jesus personally. He knows the character of God. He knows what's about to happen when he hits that shore, that Jesus is going to embrace him in such a way that this man most likely has never been embraced before. See, we all have those moments when we're gonna go backward. We know it, we can feel it. When we start thinking about the ways we've screwed up and how it's most likely gonna happen again, we all have those moments where we just finally accept this is our lot in life. And yet I'm here to tell you, whatever boat you go back into, wherever you find yourself, Jesus will be on the shore just far enough away that you actually have to actively fish and actively step or actively swim, but there nonetheless to remind you and me that he's ready for that wet hug, that he's ready for that embrace, that he is ready for that place that we so desperately want of being his children embraced by him. The question is, what will you do? Will you tell Jesus to depart from you? You're just too sinful of a woman. Or will you rush towards him just as you are? Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Translation, we don't have an instrument to measure how much bigger God's plan and purposes are for our lives. We don't have that. It doesn't exist to understand how God sees us, how God loves us, how God wants to dream with us, through us, and for us, even when we are so weak, we can't see it ourselves. All we need is the humility to know who God is and that his character is enough. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He's not asking you to swim up and walk up all arrogant. Like I knew you'd come here to save me, power of the cross. No, he's instead asking for you. Yeah, some of you, sorry, that was for your, that was just to get that out of the way real quick. Because some of you, here's the thing, when you're swimming towards Jesus, you should probably have a little anxiety. You should probably be like, I don't think I earned this swim because you didn't. And in all righteousness, Jesus, who's perfect, has every right to condemn me. That could feel a bit anxious. And maybe that's what you're supposed to do as you embrace him is give that anxiousness to him. You give the fear to him. You give the pre-anticipatory anxiety to him. You give the fear to him. You give the failure to him. You don't roll up like swimming up was just, you're, you know, I was just out for a swim. Jesus happened to see you there. How you doing? That's, it's not, there's not a casualness to coming back to Christ. But whatever feelings you and I bring to the story, those things Jesus says, cast on me and I will carry them and I will hold them. This is what we could call the doing. 
We, we do a lot of mental stuff as Christians. We read, we pray, we meditate. These are all beautiful things. But sometimes you gotta do some casting. Peter was asked to cast twice. Both times his nets were filled. Both times he could have been like, nah, I've already done that. I've already been there. I've already taken this routine through another dysfunctional church, some of you might be thinking. I've already given the church thing a shot and it blew up in my face. The dream of being part of a healthy church is dead. And I'm just here to tell you, you're probably right. There's a lot of anxiety about the role that I carry. There's a lot of anxiety about the staff. There's a lot of anxiety about leaders. There's a lot of anxiety that we're just gonna mess this whole thing up. And so here's what I'm telling you the truth is. You're right. So what I keep doing is just casting that anxiety to Jesus. See, I had a bummer church experience as well. And mine was big. And then I started this place with a bunch of friends who said it could be different. And then it really wasn't different. Just like when you thought you were gonna do so much better than your parents. Remember when you were like 15, 16 years, years old and you were like, when I'm an adult, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. I remember I told my dad at one time in a big argument, I go, when I'm an adult, I'm gonna get a motorcycle and a Doberman. Because <laughs> he always had these small dogs and lame and he had never had a motorcycle. And then I got a motorcycle and a Doberman, wrecked my motorcycle and the Doberman chewed up everything I owned. <laughs> everything dog was crazy. I remember my dad came over one time and he was like, how's this working out for you? And I was like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. We bring what we bring to the table. The difference is, are we the ones who carry it when it gets messy or can we give those things to God? Can we change our posture like Peter? Because we now know the character of God and go, God, you're our lead pastor. It's your church. It's your system. It's your structure. It's your mess. I'm going to do the best I can to bring who I am and give you all of it including my pride, my arrogance, my, my narcissism, my stuff, my lusts, my greed. Is there some in here, is there more stuff I need to cover for some of you? You're like, I'm waiting for mine, right? My self-denial, right? That's a, this is what we do. We bring it to him and we cast it to him and he holds it. But sometimes we gotta take that active step of actually aligning ourselves with God. This is hard to explain. Here's why, because Christians take active steps as work. It becomes work, measurable work that I can say, well, I do this in the kingdom and you do that in the kingdom. So let's measure whose work is more important. Or let's measure how much better work I'm doing this year than last year or how much worse work I'm doing this year than last year. And once again, we get back into the space of constantly thinking about ourselves as the ones doing the doing. We are called to just bring it. So I wanna illustrate it for you because I want you to leave this series understanding this very important principle that I'm about to show you. When we started the series, we made paper airplanes. It was a lot of fun, both campuses. We found multiple peoples in their 80s and 90s that had never made a paper airplane in their lives that made them for the first time in church service with us. It's a super cool thing. I don't know if you know this, but children have been making paper airplanes as well in their classrooms, including today, both campuses, people are make, the children are making paper airplanes. So for my illustration, I asked Keith if he could bring me three or so of the kids to each service so that they could throw the paper airplanes they made off the balcony. You have one job, one simple job. And that simple job is to play the part of God for these children that he plays for you. You are to be encouraging about their best effort. You are to applaud. You are to hold in high esteem these young people and the thing they're about to do. So would you please welcome Pastor Keith 
and a few of the kids from our children's ministry. Ready? Come on, Hattie. Let's go. Hello. How's it going? Hi, Keith. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, who do you have? Paper airplane makers. Okay. Yeah. They're going to introduce themselves. Okay. We're ready. it's cooler than me doing it, evidently. So okay. You're going to go first? Are you ready? Okay. What? How about your name and how old you are? I'm Olivia and I'm nine. Okay. All right. You ready? You want to stand up here? We're going to count. We're going to count down. We have music. We're going to rock this out. Is there anything going yeah, on? Yeah, good. Yo, count us down. Music's going. Ready? Three, two, one, go. Nice. Good job. All right. You ready? Tell everybody who you are. My name is Peyton, and I'm eight years old. Yep. You ready? Wait, I got to count. You ready? Three, two, one, go. Peyton. Nice. Woo! Nice. That was amazing. <laughs> Nice job. All right. Can you tell everybody who you are? I'm named Hattie, and I'm Foy. All right. You ready to throw your plane? Okay. Ready? Three, two, one. Throw it. Yeah. Woo. We did it. Good job, everybody. Keith. All right. What, what was her name? Hattie. Hattie? Hattie. Hattie, okay. Hattie's okay. four. Okay, thank you. Yep. Can we appreciate right. Keith? Good job, guys. Thank you for and having us. All right. <clears throat> Here's my question. What is this? Oh, oh, I got to turn it around. Oh, now it's a plane. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Just for... Just for human standards of, of paper airplaning. This little girl has hands just like me, eyes just like me. She's bright. This is the best she's got? What's wrong with this? Hmm. Nothing. Nothing in anyone's eyes. Because this little girl is a person in process. And we see her, right? And we see her effort. And she threw it and it flew nowhere. It flew nowhere. And you all cheered like, like, like oh, my, did you see Hattie? Unbelievable. It just tumbled to the ground. <laughs> and yet, everyone in this audience knows that if Hattie came and gave you this plane or her parents or her grandparents, this would be a sacred effort and a sacred item. Now sit in the moment with me just for a second. Now imagine the distance between Hattie and you, right? Why? Because you have eyes to see where she's going. You have eyes to see her effort. You have eyes to see that this really is a paper airplane to her. She's doing the best she can. And there's not a thing wrong with it. Now imagine this is your life. This is your life. This is your space. And you look at everybody else's life, everybody else's paper airplanes, and you're like, my life is garbage. Like I have made so many poor choices. I have made so many mistakes. Like, like look at the fold of, of the marriage I'm in. Look at, the, look at the way my money works. Look at my pride. Do you know when I was, uh, I walked out to use the restroom during one of the worship songs and I met a man, he's in the service right now. He didn't give me his name. We washed our hands and as he walked out, I said, hey, I'm glad you're here. And he turned to me and he says, two weeks sober. And I said, yes, yes. 
And when God sees his story and God sees your story, he doesn't say to him, well, you call me, sir, when you've been sober a year. You call me when you get it all creased up. You call me when it flies further than two weeks or he sees your story or my story. He doesn't look at the choices and the failures and the mistakes that I hold up really not to him, but to other people and then deem my life garbage. There's not a person in the room who wouldn't see whatever this is as sacred. Imagine how God sees your life. Imagine how he holds your life your choices, your addictions, your secrets. He knows them all. He's seen them all. He is in that desert with you and he loves what you've built and he is ready for you to follow in the dream that he has for you. But you have to start by realizing that he holds you in the same space we all hold Hattie infinitely more. And he is not disappointed and he is not brokenhearted. He sees you through the eyes of his son who died on a cross so that you could be forgiven and whole and sacred, just like that little girl's best effort. So my hope for you is that you leave the series knowing the creator created you to create a life that he's put inside you, a dream that he's given your head and your space and your eyes and your heart and your job and mine is to stand up, to go pull it out from under the bush, to take a drink of his living water that's always been present, scripture says, to be quenched and know that I am enough, that you are enough, and that he wants to walk with you forgiven and renewed back into that story that you've been avoiding, back into that dream that has a heartbeat once more. This place is supposed to be about that. That's what we're here to do for the rest of our lives together. And my hope is that we get to do it together. Now there's three easy action steps for some of you. This may not be for everybody, but it's gonna be for some of you. First, you saw in the announcement video, the Hello Kesson. These are opportunities for you to get to know the pastors here and the pastors to get to know you. But some of you would rather just kind of be a part of the congregation, part of the crowd. And I would encourage you not to let that church wound or that uh, fear of being known uh, be an obstacle or excuse from, from you coming to be a part of this. Um, I'm gonna be there, we're gonna tell the Kesson story and I would love to meet every single one of you who feel like God has called you into this church family. The other one is the baptism and worship night tonight. Some of you, you know that Jesus is asking you to be baptized. You just know. You can sign up or you can show up. I'll take you either way. But we'll be here. We got towels if you show up in your clothes just to see what God wants to do. We can send you home with one if you wanna go home wet or you could sign up and that way you can actually bring shorts and not go home soaking wet, but it doesn't bother us either way. We're gonna have an incredible night of worship. I hope that you change your plans and come to be a part, even if it's just to be a voice in the room or a prayer in the room for others who are coming to this special and sacred place. So again, that's tonight, six o'clock right here. And the last one, and I'm very excited about this, is that in two weeks after Super Bowl Sunday next, next week, uh, we're gonna launch a brand new series uh, called Stir, and it's all gonna be based on the Holy Spirit and who he is and how he works with us because I'm here to tell you this thing th that we're a part of, um, it, it's gone as far as I know how to take it and we need together to go before the Holy Spirit and ask him what he wants to do with it next. There's just too much that can go wrong now to put it into the hands of 
of men and women. And so we as a church are going to come before the Holy Spirit and learn how to interact with him, to understand him, to receive from him, and uh, to, be, to be held by him. And so that starts in two weeks. My hope is that you'll come. That uh, maybe if you've been watching online for a long time, we did the survey a while back. There's a lot of people who have only watched online who have never come and actually been in the room because they got a lot of pain. Maybe this is a series for you to risk. Maybe it's a series for you to bring a friend, bring your most church hurt friend to stir. We'll do, a, we'll do a whole weekend for it. We'll see what God wants to do. This is his church. We are his children. He loves all the creases and all the folds. Even if you don't feel like you've flown very far, he believes that you are sacred, loved, and whole, that you are enough, that it's not your fault, and that what he wants now from you is just a yearning and a restorative prayer, asking him to make himself more and more known to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this space. Thank you for just um, what you do, God, when we don't know what else to do. Thank you for the awakenings, the healings, the hope, the restoration, the renewal, the redemption, and any other word that might bring a characteristic of you moving within the life of one of your children. We love you. We don't deserve it, but we receive it. We thank you for who you are. May you stir within us as we leave this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. God bless. See you next week.